In Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, narrator Charlie Marlowe's frustration with the management and people of the center station is displayed to his audience on the Thames River and the reader through symbolism, the questioning of motives, and the motif of exterior slash interior. Marlowe has arrived at the disrepair center station to find out that his steamboat has been sunk. Marlowe has to fix his steamboat in order to proceed up the Congo River. Although the incident was presumed an accident, Marlowe, from his outside narrator knowledge, now, sus now suspects that the sinking was on purpose in order to, to delay Marlowe's trip to the Mr. To the mysterious Mr. Kurtz station. Such a suspicion sets the mood for the last part of section one, adding to the mood of uneasiness, the feeling that there is something Marlowe does not know but everyone else does in the center station is the manager of the center station. The manager from right off the bat is described as having remarkably cold eyes with a glance as trenchant and heavy as an axe. Marlowe describes his smile as an indefinable faint expression on his lips, something stealthy. He describes it as a half smile, not a smile, but a smile, an unconscious smile. Now, when I think of an un unconscious smile, I think of the phrase, that a smile that doesn't quite reach the eyes. The manager's smile is detached, the rhetoric suggesting that he's a character with ulterior motives. He is a shady character. On the other hand, though, Marlowe describes it as impossible to tell what controlled him. This reminds me of Heath Ledger's infamous Joker from the 2008 Christopher Nolan movie, The Dark Knight. In the movie, good old Alfred the Butler explains to Bruce Wayne, aka Batman, who was trying to figure out what the madman Joker wanted, that some men just want to see the world burn. Now, it is written that the manager's smile was a door opening into a darkness he had in his keeping. Furthermore, Marlowe heard the manager even state, men who come out here should have no entrails, basically meaning that the men out here should have no heart and no gut to puke. Yet, in contrast, while I first suspected the manager to be the antagonist, Marlowe's later remarks and comments about the manager summed him up to be a pretty average man for the area for the Congo, which was, golly, is quite wild. And that he is just someone who is in charge, basically because of his resilience to disease. Marlowe makes it very clear that the manager runs the central station by asserting uneasiness, something Marlowe states is a very effective faculty, but at the same time, an idea has formed that the manager is not quite the big bad, but is really fearful of someone else. A feeling of nervousness surrounds the whole settlement, 
especially at the mention of Mr. Kurtz. So much so that the manager accidentally broke a stick of sealing wax from fidgeting after Marlowe said he heard of this Agent Kurtz on the coast. The introduction of the manager, with the symbolism of his cold eyes and manipulative smile, his exterior, and the questioning of his motive, what he fears, his interior, allows us to examine Conrad's contrasting motif of exterior slash interior, almost this exterior versus interior, what is going on on the exterior, what these characters kind of say that they want or what it appears that they want versus what is truly going on inside the reality and this especially adds to the idea that there's something that Marlowe does not know that everybody else knows now what is the average man for the area, you may ask? Now, Marlowe states it as flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of a rap- rapacious and pitiless folly. Men strolling aimlessly about in the sunshine of the yard. Absurd, long staves in their hands, like a lot of faithless pilgrims, bewitched inside a rotten fi- fence. Now, it appears that the men of the area do not hold the highest opinion for old Marlowe. Now, the colonists of Central Station, which Marlowe refers to as pilgrims, is the main cause for much of Marlowe's pondering. He ponders their motives. Why are they here? The conditions they're living in is not the best, as many of the men when they finally do leave, leave sick with disease. They do nothing all day but wait around for something to happen. Marlowe simply wants to have his steamboat fixed so that he can go on in his adventure. Yet, these pilgrims only dream about ivory. Ivory symbolizes their god. It represents their economic freedom, their opportunity to power. The word ivory rang in the air, was whispered, was sighed. You would think that they were praying to it. A taint of imbecile rapacity blew through it all, like a whiff from some corpse, states Marlowe on page 39. The men treat the native workers badly, hitting them with their precious staves, but they ironically worship ivory like a god, constantly plotting against each other while also doing nothing to achieve their goals of gaining this ivory. Marlowe concludes that the pilgrims are much more foolish and savage than the actual native workers. Their ambition is ultimately insignificant in the context of their situation, their little dot of clearing in the continent of Africa. Their evil intentions, their greedy ambition is meaningless as they are surrounded by the wilderness. Now, this wilderness consistently represents an invincible, unconquerable force in Marlowe's mind, much like evil or truth. Quote, waits patiently for the invasion to pass 
and is like a mother taking in the beaten native into its bosom. Marlowe marvels at its mystery, the amazing reality of its concealed life, how it is prim- primeval, being very old. Marlowe's frustration with the pilgrim's ignorance leads him to ponder Mr. Kurtz, who is out there in the wilderness, an alternative to the central station's stupidity. Now, the alternative of Mr. Kurtz is especially made clear to Marlowe after he notices an oil painting of a dignified, blindfolded woman holding a torch, surrounded by darkness. Now, this painting may represent the idea of the day that the women should stay at home and that they're ignorant to everything that's going on in the world, which is almost exemplified by Marlowe's aunt who got him the job, who justifies imperialism as helping almost, you know, civilize the natives. But to Marlowe, the painting represents, well, the painting was found in the room of the bricklayer, a man who is very greedy for ivory and is almost the secondhand man to the manager who he's the spy, the spy of the managers. And ridiculously, the man does not even lay bricks as there are not even enough supplies around for him to make bricks, which is something Marlowe is very frustrated about the disorganization of the whole company as all he wants to do is get some rivets to fix his boat so he can go upstream. <laughs> now, the bricklayer, after attempting to find out if Marlowe knew anything, in which Marlowe is completely clueless, he just wants to have a steamboat. The bricklayer reveals that it was Kurtz who painted the picture, in which Marlowe, to Marlowe the picture represents the large difference between the ignorance of the pilgrims and Mr. Kurtz. He sees Mr. Kurtz as a, as a sophisticated man. The, brick ray, the bricklayer then reveals to Marlowe that Mr. Kurtz was sent by the company as a man of science, progress, and emissary of pity. Ever since, Kurt has been supplying the company with, the, with more ivory than all of the other stations combined. A position of great power. The pilgrims have been waiting around for a hopeful transfer to his station. Marlowe understands that Mr. Kurt's position is of great power, something that the pilgrims are jealous of as they have been waiting for such a position for a while before Kurtz came out of nowhere. The bricks layer slash spy, along with the manager, have suggestively been trying to bring down Mr. Kurtz or get to such a position of power. Now, this explains their motive in possibly sinking Marlowe's ship and the uneasy feeling of Marlowe not being told the whole story. In contrast, despite the bricklayer's attempts to undermine Kurtz, he falls into fear when he comes to believe that Marlowe is an associate of Kurtz, 
which Marlow, amazed by this, tries to use his attempt to fall into good graces to get his beloved rivets. But a bigger question has now been formed. Why so fearful? Now, yes, the bricklayer slash spy accidentally revealing that he had been attempting to hurt Kurtz's success can result in him not getting transferred to Kurtz Station. But the mood of the story has always been surrounding the the mysterious Mr. Kurtz. Others talk of him as a dignified man, yet do so anxiously, fearfully, and jealously. And what are the pilgrims most jealous of, most greedy for? Wealth, power, ivory. It calls to the question, how has this Mr. Kurtz garnered so much wealth and power and more ivory than all of the other stations combined? The manager did say that men who come out of here should have no entrails. The motif of exterior slash interior flows into Marlowe's storytelling style, which presents this problem of being unclear, creating a sort of back and forth guessing game. Marlowe, as a present storyteller, is looking back on his experiences with new knowledge of what happened. Yet, as the reader, much like his audience in the novel, do not have this knowledge. Marlowe does not always address what he believes to be true and even what his own motive is. He only suggests his own thinking about the nature around him, in the wilderness and in the heart of men. By asking tough questions such as, what were we who had been strayed in here? And could we handle that dumb thing or would it handle us? Now, I guess time will only tell for old Marlowe if he will fall into this greed displayed by everyone else around him, or if there's a different motive in hand, or that the dumb thing of wilderness will handle him instead of him handling it.